Our epistle lesson is found in Romans chapter 1. We are reading verses 24 through 32 this week. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we confess that it is in you that we live and that we move and that we have our being. We acknowledge that we've turned from you, but by your spirit, you've granted us new life And today you are renewing our minds that we know how to properly worship you and offer ourselves to you. And so give us grace, God, as we read of difficult things and renew us and restore us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. What's wrong? What's the problem? These are simple questions. Perhaps you've been asked them by a spouse, by a trusted friend, by a mentor or a confidant. During one particularly troubled patch of life, I was asked these questions and realized that I didn't know how to answer. I had certain things that I could say, some things that I could point to about what was wrong, what the problem was, but I knew none of them were comprehensive. Nothing got fully at the trouble. There were so many dynamics involved that I couldn't count them, I couldn't number them, I couldn't understand them. There were personal issues, there were emotional issues, there were relational issues involving others. There were theological issues between me and God and others and God. There were circumstances and situations to it. I couldn't fully understand, nor could I articulate the problem. This is true for us in our personal lives. We have all experienced that. But it's especially true for us when it comes to the broader canvas of human society and of our world. Philosophers and the world's religions are taken up with those two questions. 
what's wrong and what is the problem? Various answers have been proposed. Some have said that the problem is a lack of being in touch with your true self and that the problem is solved if you can simply get hold of your inner being. Some have said that we're disconnected from nature and that if we can only reconnect with the world, then we are solving the problem. Some would say that it's unjust social and economic systems, that this is the problem of the world. If you can address those structures, then you will have solved the world's trouble. Others have said that it's a lack of technological advancement. And just with the next advances, the world's problems will be solved. But there's something deep in the human heart, whether it's our personal or whether it's that global view, that we know each of these definitions comes up short. That those attempts to define what's wrong with the world and what is the world's real true problem don't comprehensively get it, that they don't articulate all the trouble and trial and difficulty of what's wrong in our world. And in Romans 1, what we find is the Christian account. It's the Apostle Paul's answer to the question, what's wrong? What is the problem with the world in which we live in? And he doesn't provide a situational answer. No, he provides a universal blanket that defines the human problem, answering the question, what is wrong? There's three aspects to that answer, to that problem that we'll consider this morning. We'll consider the origin of this problem. We'll consider the ramifications of it. And then finally, we'll consider God's solution to the problem that encounters us. First, the origins of the problem. In verses 24 through 32, we have an intense section of Scripture in which Paul three times tells us that God gave up human beings. In verse 24, we're told that we were given up to the lust of our hearts. In verse 26, we're told that we're given up to dishonorable passions. And finally, in verse 28, we're told that we were given up to a debased mind. And so what does it mean to be given up? Could be translated handed over. It is to be handed over, to be delivered to the judgment by God in which humans are left to their own devices and their own desires. The critical thing for us here is what we find in verse 25 as to why God has done this, why God has given us up to our own devices and desires. The explanation is clear. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Paul provides this explanation again in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. The logic is simple and it's clear and it cuts across. That we were given up to all manner of dishonor and to all manner of moral depravity and sin because of this fundamental rebellion that takes place. 
that we exchanged the truth about God and we exchanged it for a lie. And as we get into the depths of this passage, I can't stress enough how critical it is to keep this logic clear that if we're to discuss disordered human sexuality in our modern world, that we have to keep this in focus. That moral depravity here is a result and a consequence of this fundamental rebellion against God. The human perversity and all of its shades and all of its shadows and all of its varieties and forms is not the reason for the wrath of God. That the wrath of God descends upon us because of this primal rejection of God. And then that all of human depravity is simply evidence of that wrath. Remember where we began in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. And so Paul refuses to provide for us a catalog of sins that are the cause of our alienation from God. Rather, he pins it at one place. That the cause of our alienation from God is this exchange that takes place. We've been handed over to our own devices and our own desires. We've been handed over to destroy ourselves, to self-destruct because we snubbed God. We traded him out. We traded out the truth for a lie. And this is the fundamental problem that plagues you, that plagues me, that plagues our world. It's the Christian answer to the question. Last week, we explored the personal nature of this rebellion, of this rejection of God. That God, the benevolent creator, fashioned and formed a world, and he filled that world with beauty. And he filled it with his good gifts for human beings who were created in his image to enjoy. This creation, the very works of God's hands that he spoke into existence, reveals God to us. Calvin says that we live in a theater of the glory of God. And so inside of that theater, we are to receive all the revelation from God and to know to return thanks to him. But we saw that in our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. We hold it down. We don't listen to that revelation, even though it's abundantly clear. And so we're without excuse. We refuse to worship God. We refuse to give thanks to him. And that these are not just talking about certain classes of people. We saw that this is a discussion about everyone. Each one of us have participated in that exchange And so humans refuse to submit to God's wisdom. And what we have done is we've set out to establish our own wisdom. We wanted to be the judge of truth and error. We wanted to be the judge of light and darkness. We wanted to be the judges of right and wrong. This is what it means to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is not to submit our judgments to God's judgments, but it's rather to make our own judgments. 
And friends, this is the perilous human project that we all have endeavored out into. Every one of us. We wanted to be independent from God. Not to have a master, not to have a Lord. And we wanted to autonomously set our own course. This is what it means to trade out the truth of God for the lie. We have shunned the way of life that was trust and obedience and dependence. And we've embraced our own hard path. And we've called that wisdom. The lie is simply this. It is the promise that there's life and wisdom outside of God. We believe that there's going to be life that it's going to fund us with meaning and significance and value, even though it's empty and bankrupt. It's a shadow. It can't deliver. But what we do is we set ourselves up to be the authority. We set ourselves up to be the judge of every matter. This is what the lie says, that we are the lords of our own destiny, that we are our own authority, that we determine the truth. This is the primal problem. And you see, it's not an arbitrary choice that was made in which a fruit was eaten. No, that is far more profound than that. That there is this personal, and there is this invective against God in it, in which we turned against him. And friends, behind all the depravity of human beings, of you and me, there is one source, there's one origin. It is this fundamental disordering that happens in which we turn against God. And so this takes us to the second of our points. It's the ramifications of this problem. That it is from this primal problem this source of all other human problems, that we see ramifications flow. And the ramification is that God actively hands us over, leaving us to our devices and our desires. The moral depravity that we find in Romans 1 is extensive. It's difficult to even capture it all inside of one sermon because so many different words are used. But in each case, they are the evidence and they are the consequence for exchanging the truth about God for a lie. Moral depravity that lives in you and lives in me is a symptom of the larger sickness. It's not the cause of the sickness. There's three things that Paul specifies, though, about this sickness. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. It's a fairly general statement here. We were turned over to our desires for impure things that has resulted in the dishonoring of our bodies. The words here indicate certain sexual overtones, but it also includes things broader than that. And then in verses 26 and 27, for this reason, 
God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Due to our cultural climate and situation, it's important to give broader comments on this particular handing over that took place when human beings exchanged the truth for a lie. Because in our own cultural time, it is these types of relationships, this disordered human desire, same-sex sexual activity, that we find normalized in the world before us. And as we live in that society and in that culture, I would remind you of two critical things. First, disordered sexuality is not new. For many of us, it just simply seems to have come from nowhere. It appeared in sitcoms and then has gradually moved itself into the political world and now is somewhat of the new normal. But we need not be shocked or we need not be surprised by this. This is what God gave human beings up to as a judgment, as condemnation for their turn against him. History is full of it, if you're a student of that. Roman society was ripe with it. And the church, this is not its first encounter with disordered human sexuality. We don't need to sway, changing our minds, believing that the future of the church lies in being relevant to these particular desires. We also don't need to be filled with hate, acting as if this particular sin takes someone out of the boundaries of God's grace. This is part of what human beings were handed over to. And second, disordered sexuality for human beings also reflects the original problem. We're told in verse 25 that humans exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And then in verse 26, we see that there was another exchange where human design, as they were designed by God, they exchanged that design for a design of their own making. It's critical to follow the logic of Paul here, that he's speaking of an exchange that's related to this primal exchange. When the truth was forsaken, when human beings announced that they wanted to be the judge of right and wrong, that they wanted to determine their destiny and their future, that of course human beings went about defining sexuality the way that they wanted to. When humans alienated themselves from God, they made themselves those judges, and they began to redefine everything about life in this world. Disordered worship will always result in disordered sexuality. Humans rejected God's design and desire for his image when they ate of the tree. And this is what we see working out in our world and in our culture today. And it is this fallen human project 
that involves two fundamental things. One, we want to determine what is right and wrong. We want no standards set above us beyond our own desires and appetites. And two, we want to define what a human being is apart from God and his revelation. And in our own cultural times and circumstances, human identity is defined by one primary thing, is particularly indebted to the philosopher and psychologist Sigmund Freud, and it's defined by our sexual preferences, our sexual desires, and our sexual attractions. This is what our culture is taken up with. But it's just at this place where we live in a world that is caught up in a definition of what a human being is and defining that by its sexual attractions This is where Christians disagree, that we would say this is a weak and impoverished notion of who you are, that you are more than that, and that we can say that to someone in any amount of disorder or any amount of dysfunction, that you are more than that, that sexuality is a good gift of your creator, and it's intended to be enjoyed according to God's design and according to God's desires but that you are more than that. That God fashioned you as his image to relate to him, to give thanks to him, to be whole in that relationship. And this is the conversation that we as Christians much engaged in. That we understand that our world is profoundly broken. Sin is not just a small sickness that you can be vaccinated from. It's not even just a big problem that sin, as it's laid out for us here in Romans 1, is a universal problem. And that we are under the judgment of God and that we've been turned over to all manner of passions and disorders, sexual and otherwise. Verse 28 and 29, we see the last of the handing over. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. The list is extensive. And it puts every one of us under indictment. That what we have here is not a catalog of sins that refers to a certain group of people. It would be nice. It's what many who sit in church pews and chairs would like. But that's not what we have. Rather, what we have is a list of the disordering of human life, defining our problem as our rebellion and rejection of God, in which we've sought out to be the masters of our own lives, to live autonomously from him. And we can recognize ourselves in that mirror. And we can recognize the world in which we live in, in that mirror. And that the problem is profound and deep, And it's so deep that there is not a quick, superficial answer. Because please remember, 
that where Paul is driving at this point in the letter and early on is to explain why the righteousness of God is necessary if you're going to be reconciled to God. And so he has to give us an accurate understanding of the problem and the depth of it and how deep it drives and that it implicates every one of us. And there is one solution. The solution to our problem that it too is related to this giving up of God. Three times we've seen that God gave us up to our devices and our desires. It's also important to note that Paul, in writing his letters, he did so very deftly and with some literary knowledge because he reintroduces this word of giving up once again in chapter 8. As his letter rises to a certain climax here in verse 32, listen to what he says. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That yes, God gave us up to all of our depravity and all of the things that we can dream up to do apart from him. He gave us up in order that he could work out his secret plan and sending his one and only son into the world and he gave him up. And that he has died and that he has risen, the righteous one who was without sin, who was not subject to the dishonorable passions and yet who subjected himself to our judgment. And he stood in our place on the cross. And as we look to him in faith, God then decrees that we are righteous. What is true of Jesus, the righteous one, becomes true of us. Despite all of the sordid filth in which we've participated, despite being turned over and handed over and delivered to our sins, that God overlooks those because they've been forgiven in Jesus. And friends, this is the solution to the problem. It's not a solution that just counts for these disreputable people or these people who do this or that. It's the solution for every human being because we're all indicted by God here. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul will conclude. None is righteous, no, not one. There is no discrimination that takes place here that we've been handed over But better yet, the son has been handed over for you. That you might be reconciled to God. That that primal, fundamental rebellion, that rejection against God, that God now will renew your mind. Yes, you've been given over to a debased mind. But we read in chapter 12 that God is now renewing our minds. And that is what he does in his grace. As we are united to Jesus, he forgives our sins and he begins to restore us from one degree to the next. 
And friends, this is the good news of the gospel. It's accompanied by some of the most threatening and challenging news that you and I can imagine. Hard words. Words that offend our pride. Words that tell us things about ourselves we don't really want to accept. But if we're truly to hear the message of the righteousness of God that comes to deliver us, it is this wound that we first need to receive. And then the healing makes sense. That we've been handed over, but yet more profound and true, Jesus has been handed over for us. And so friends, let's give thanks to this good and gracious God who created us for himself, and despite all of our rejection, he reconciles us to himself. Let's give thanks to him. Let's pray. Father, we encounter hard truths this morning, hard truths that return to that fundamental problem that animates our world and defines our lives. We have exchanged your truth for a lie. We have snubbed you and turned against you. And now we eat the bitter fruit, the consequences, the ramifications. They are deep and dark. We don't like to think of ourselves in these ways. But God, give us the courage to see ourselves through your eyes to understand the unrighteousness and the ungodliness that characterizes us in every way. We thank you that you freed us from these chains. They're chains of our own making. And you have done so through your son, Jesus. That not only did you deliver up us to our sins, but you delivered up the son. And we are free in him. Free from the weight of our guilt, free from the weight of our sin, free from the weight of judgment because Jesus has received it on our behalf. Open our eyes today that we may receive Jesus in fresh faith, knowing what he has done for us, the unrighteous, that we would be righteous by faith. We give thanks that it is our Lord Jesus who now intercedes for us that he stands at your right hand and it is in and through him that we make all of our prayers and that we make our approach to you. He is our righteousness. And so hear us as we come and as we bring the various burdens and concerns of this tired and this weary world. So let's join our hearts together in silent prayer for the following concerns. Let's ask God to fill the world with the knowledge of his glory, even as the waters cover the sea. Let's especially pray for our mission partner, Kevin Bigelow, as he establishes a new church in Jacksonville Beach. Ask God to sustain Kevin through these early years and to establish a vibrant worshiping community centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray for our mayor, Lenny Curry. Let's pray for our governor, Ron DeSantis. And let's pray for our president, Joe Biden, as they navigate these difficult days. Ask God to endow them with wisdom that they may pursue peace 
and justice and righteousness above all else. And let's pray for our congregation, especially our vulnerable populations this morning. Remember those with underlying health conditions and also the elderly. Ask God to preserve our health, blessing us in body and soul through this pandemic. And let's pray for the sick and suffering in our congregation asking God to keep and to guard them in all their trials. Let's especially pray for Barbara Day, for Sue Forsyth, for Gar Gorganius, for Hector and Viona Harima, for Wayne Noble, for Eileen Tyson as she fights pneumonia, and Asher Park as he recovers from a head injury. And let's pray for all the children and youth of Christ Church, asking God to bless them in the knowledge of his love, that they will never remember a day apart from Jesus Christ. These things we pray in the name of the one who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.